Did you play dress-ups as a kid? Pretend to be a superhero or an astronaut or a princess? All you needed was the right gear, the cape or the dress and you were the character you wanted to be. As we get older, sadly, our imaginations get a bit tamer. Still, what we believe about ourselves still plays a strong role in our lives and how we experience the world. It shapes our aspirations, our ambitions, our perceptions, our identity. Our beliefs are core to who we are as people. Some of us wear our beliefs publicly on bumper stickers or badges or symbols we wear or carry. Beliefs are powerful. They can get you elected or cancelled. They can start wars, drive revolutions. And some beliefs are more important than others, obviously. What we believe about the state of the economy or the quality of our footy team or the correct way to say yogurt, which is yogurt, by the way, is not important. What is important is what we believe about the man Jesus. John, a disciple of Jesus, wrote his gospel so that, as he says in chapter 20, verse 31, his readers would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and by believing have life in his name. If we accept Jesus' claims and believe the signs or miracles he did when he was alive on the earth, then we accept that he is God. We can know what God is like and we're compelled to respond. If we don't accept Jesus' testimony, then his life is not only insignificant, but he has pulled off the greatest fraud in history. And because he claims to be God, the identity of all people everywhere rests on their response to the claims he made. In this passage, we see two categories, the sheep who belong to him and those who do not. Jesus, a Jew, is speaking to here to his own people, a people defined by their belief in a single God who required them to live in a particular way with particular beliefs and practices that marked them out from the cultures and the nations around them. Their identity as Jews revolved around the law that they believed God himself had given them through their prophet Moses. It ordered every aspect of their lives, when they would work, when they would rest, what they could and couldn't eat, how to settle disputes, buy property, marry, and on and on. They believed in these things, and these beliefs made them who they were, defined their identity, they also believed that, as their scriptures told them, they would be led by a great king, the anointed one, the Messiah. He would lead them to victory over their enemies and reign as a good, devout king. But in this passage, Jesus, the rabbi from nowhere, explodes the categories for his fellow Jews. He's more than a political leader, and he's more than a religious teacher. He's not what Israel was expecting in their promised Messiah. For any Jew, any Pharisee present at the events in this passage, it was a confusing experience to be confronted with Jesus. So I'm going to try and put us in the place of one of those Jews. They wanted him to put them out of their misery. Because, you see, this Jesus had been turning up at the feast recently with almost predictable regularity. Passover, then tabernacles, and now Hanukkah. This is when they celebrated the, the rededication of the temple after the great revolution in 165 BC, when Judas Maccabeus and his guerrilla army overran the evil forces of the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes. 
King Antiochus Epiphanes had occupied Israel, desecrated the temple with a pagan idol, and oppressed Israel, forbidding every form of Hebrew worship. They couldn't be who they were. This Jesus seemed to rock up at every religious memorial of late, stirring people up with healings and miracles and talking about God and himself as if they were like a father and son team working together, him doing what the father wanted, even claiming to raise the dead and give life to people. This Jesus made everything so messy. Even that man, blind Fred, the one we all knew who was blind from birth, was unrecognizable after Jesus had healed him. Even his parents couldn't stop him falling in with this dangerous man and worshipping him as if, as if he was God. All the people that Jesus interacted seemed to lose their sense of identity. They had no shame. They weren't even afraid to break Sabbath along with him. Like the lame man at the pool in Bethesda, he just picked up his mat and walked out of there after nearly 40 years because Jesus told him he could. This Jesus wasn't afraid to be controversial Eat me, he said, I'm the bread of life. This after feeding 5,000 men and their families from a kid's lunch, if you can believe that. And he's meant to have walked on water as well. Just a few months back at Tabernacles, when we remember God's provision of water in the desert, he was channeling Isaiah, claiming to offer living water to anyone who was thirsty, saying that he was the light of the world. Then he called himself the good shepherd, like the one in David's psalm, said that he knew his sheep and they knew him. He talked about laying down his life for his sheep and taking it up again. That his father had given him authority to do that. It was all so uncomfortable. Blasphemous. So of course when he was seen out in Solomon's colonnade, where the rabbis teach their students, where the religious scholars meet, of course the Jews asked him, tell us, are you the Messiah? And he answered, I've already told you. But all he'd done was to say these strange and cryptic things and drop hints and insist on healing and acting on the Sabbath. The Messiah they were waiting for was no miracle worker. He was a freedom fighter. They were waiting for a king, a rescuer, a savior, a hero to set the nation free, not waste time with blind beggars and Samaritan women and the chronically sick, not break Sabbath, not offend the scholars. Their Messiah was meant to lead and not confuse, unite the nation, not divide it, make it powerful again, like in the time of David. But when he was pressed, he just talked about sheep again, about what he does for his sheep. He told the Jews that they were not his sheep because they didn't believe him. And then he really went off the deep end. He said, he gives his sheep eternal life and they will never die, like God himself that no one will snatch them from his hands as if he has some way of protecting them, some power to stop that. He's just a man. What's he talking about? The mob could kill him in an instant. If he went on blaspheming like this, surely they would. He said that his father gave the sheep to him and that no one can snatch them from the father's hands. And then he said what no good Jew could ever say, that he and the father were one. You see, the Jews pray the Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. Jesus was saying that he was God. It was all very shocking. Beyond shocking. Blasphemous. A good Jew doesn't do this. So of course they pick up stones to stone him. 
And he responds by telling them to look at what he's done. Look at the works, look at the miracles, he says, saying that they speak of the Father. Yes, Torah tells us that only God can open the eyes of the blind, but not on the Sabbath, surely. And then he points us to Psalm 82, where God addresses Israel as gods and challenges the Jews to fault him for calling himself a son of God. And and he's right, because in 2 Samuel, God even calls Solomon, the son of David, the one who would build the temple, his own son. And yes, God has consecrated other prophets like Jeremiah and Moses. So if the reports are true, then the works, the miracles do point to the Father. And Jesus urged the people to believe because of the works, because he says belief will lead to knowledge and understanding. It's all, but it's all the wrong way around. Surely knowledge and understanding lead to belief. That's logical. And what this Jesus does is not logical. It's as if this Jesus doesn't want us to use our God-given minds, but just believe like children. He says that believing in his works will lead to knowing and understanding the impossible, that the Father is in him, a mere man, and that he, a mere man, is in the Father. It's unthinkable. It's even harder to believe than his so-called miracles. Dangerous. So, of course, as good Jews, they move to grab him, but somehow he escapes them. And he goes up country to where that feral prophet John the Baptist used to be. Maybe for the Jews, this was a relief. Good riddance. He was out of Jerusalem, not able to cause them trouble. There are two themes here. Identity and belief. And perhaps you can see from this hopefully useful insight into how the Jews would have reacted to Jesus, how closely they're tied together. The Jews demand to know the identity of this man, have it settled as to whether he's their expected Messiah. He questions their knowledge of the scriptures and reminds them in their own words, of where God describes them as gods and their kings as sons of gods, as sons of God. They're not, so they're not new ideas, but coming from this miracle-working rabbi with no pedigree, they're fresh enough to sound new. For a good Jew to believe in this man was to lose their place in the community, to lose their identity as a good Jew. The blind man who was healed was thrown out of the temple. The temple was the center of Jewish life and community. So to believe in Jesus was to leave all of that behind, to become a new person, to have a new identity. And for those Jews that accosted him in, the Sol- in Solomon's colonnade, it was all too much. It was too big a leap. The stakes were too high. Last week, we heard Jesus claim to be the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. And in verse 29 of today's passage, he speaks more about the wider context of his flock. He says that they're eternally secure that he knows them individually. We saw last week, if you were here last week, that to accept Jesus as our shepherd was to live in the stability and security and nurture and peace, accepting his view of us as a sheep, as sheep, as creatures needing special care. The shepherd leads and guides and protects. He doesn't drive or threaten. And following him, the sheep take the path he has already taken. He knows what they'll go through because he's already gone ahead of them. And we see that God the Father is also involved with the flock, according to Jesus. So the Father also knows the sheep that he's he's given to Jesus. Both Father and Son hold the sheep securely. They are one 
in purpose, one in their commitment to the security of the flock, to those who believe. In verse 30, which is a verse that has occupied greater minds than mine over the years, the question of the nature of the Godhead arises as Jesus identifies himself with the Father and says he is one with the Father. That amounts to Jesus making himself God, as the original Greek text says. To believe in Jesus the shepherd who somehow identifies himself as God is to be one of his sheep and to belong to him. And the opposite is also true, as Jesus tells the Jews, because not to believe is not to be one of his sheep. Case closed, it seems. Either you believe and you're in, or you don't and you're out. But belief is not fixed like eye color or being left-handed. Belief is an act of the will. You see this in Jesus' invitation to his opponents. Even if it's too much to believe in me, Jesus tells them, at least believe in the works in order to understand who I am. And he refers to the works, the miracles, as the Father's, not his, to show the nature of this Father, the nature of Israel's God, the shepherd who heals and feeds his sheep, who cares for his flock and nurtures it. And he does put belief before understanding, as though belief produces or leads to understanding. This is an idea picked up many centuries later by Augustine, and one of the many paradoxes of Jesus that causes confusion about who he is. Belief leads to understanding and not the other way around. The king that Israel expected as the conquering hero comes as a servant, as a healer. Talking of laying down his life instead of destroying and dominating Israel's enemies. This would-be hero of Israel speaks about sheep outside of Israel. Does not even stay in Jerusalem, the center of life for Israel, where he might persuade Israel's leaders. But he leaves the great city of God and goes back to the margins where he first publicly appeared, back to those prepared to believe. Then and now, what we believe about Jesus' identity forms our identity as the people of God. We're Christians on the basis of believing Jesus' testimony about himself, believing in his sacrificial death and rising to new life for the forgiveness of sins and life with God forever. Our identity as Christians is not about what we do. It's not about our good lives or our acts of service. Simply believing in Jesus is enough to place us and keep us in God's flock forever. Belief is democratic. It's accessible. It's available to all. The young, the old, the educated, the, the illiterate, parent, child, male, female. You get the picture. We all have the capacity and the choice to believe. Jesus makes his appeal through his word at all times throughout history, including now. He says, if you don't believe me, believe at least in the works I've done. The works he's talking about are not just the healings and the miracles, but also his death and resurrection. And what he's doing today in the lives of believers all around the world. What we believe about Jesus forms our identity as the people of God. To believe in Jesus is to know and be known by God, to have the assurance of eternal life, the close attention and care of the Good Shepherd forever. If you're here as a believer, let this comfort you 
when life seems to spin out of control. He has gone before you and he will never forsake you. He always provides in every situation. Belief is not a given at all times, not even for the Christian though, is it? You may not be in a season of doubt or may not want to admit it, but if it hasn't happened to you, it will. There will be times when believing will feel like the hardest work you've ever done. Learning to recognize Jesus' voice through regular time in his word will help you to hold fast in seasons of doubt. Don't isolate yourself when that happens. Stay close to the flock, your Christian family, and let them encourage you. This is crucial because belief is the work that's required of us, as Jesus tells us in John 6. Our work is to believe in God and the one whom he has sent. It's an ongoing, daily, sometimes in bad times, hourly decision that guides our actions. To believe, to trust, to rely on Jesus, the good shepherd. Know from this passage today that your belief needs to be active and activated daily. No one can snatch you out of God's or Jesus' hands. But if you drift into unbelief, you may find yourself tuning in less to Jesus' voice. Support your belief and your faith by time in the word, learning what Jesus' voice is like. The beautiful believers around you are your friends in the flock. Believers walking in the same road as you, and they are our resource to encourage you and build you up in your faith, to pray on your behalf when you're too tired or weary or spent to pray, to remind you why you're a Christian and of what God is doing in your life and theirs so that you can rejoice with them maybe in the midst of your difficulties, taking your eyes off yourself even to see what God is doing in your friends and family in Christ and knowing that you're not alone. If you're here and you don't believe, notice that Jesus does not criticise his opponents for not believing in him, but he invites them to look at the evidence of what he has done Like us, John's original audience received this gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the supreme evidence of who he claimed to be. And there would still have been enough eyewitnesses alive at the time to refute the claims of the miracles, which Jesus confidently presented as his credentials. So let me invite you, if you're not believing, to investigate. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, it's worth finding out. If you want a way to the Father and the creator of all things seen and unseen, to the good shepherd, Jesus is the only way, as he says earlier in this chapter. He doesn't force anyone to believe, but he urges us, as he urges the skeptical Jews, to believe in order that they might understand who he is, so that believing they might have life in his name. It may be time to ditch the uh, illusion of self-sufficiency. When Jesus describes us as sheep, he's not wrong. We all need help, nurture, guidance, and protection. Jesus offers to lead and guide us as we believe and trust in him. So why not take part in the supreme adventure of knowing and following Jesus Christ and experience the abundant life that he came to give us? If you're not a believer, then I appeal to you to consider Jesus' claims to be the light of the world, the one who meets all your needs, your good shepherd, the gate to ultimate security and belonging in God's family. If you want to know more, come and talk to me or Chris after the service. Come and talk to one of the prayer team after, after the service today who will be available. Our identity is bound up in our beliefs. Our beliefs form and shape our identities. The Lord Jesus invites us 
to become the sheep of his pasture by believing in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your generous and gracious invitation to us to believe in you that we might understand what it is to know God, to have security, to know your love and your commitment to us forever. We pray, Lord, that your word will bear fruit in our lives to your glory. Amen. Amen.